is Offstage with, with the, the Upstage. upstage. Uh, we're here with Shanine. We're going to do a little interview with her. That's not really an interview because we <laughs> didn't prepare anything. Shanine is our good friend. We went to Villanova together, and this was her thesis piece for her master's in theater. Uh, so, so yeah, so we're just going to talk with Shanine about life and things in this play. I'll talk back, too. That sounds great. Cool. Great. You can talk for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> we won't put words in your mouth. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Because if I'm being really honest, I don't, I don't know your career. <laughs> she it's, it's cute that you call it a career, Anne. I like that. That's really cute. <laughs> she was my ASM doing Godspell. And I still have a really sparkly wine glass that she made as a yes. thank you. That my nine-year-old drinks out of. It gets blue, blue glitter on her face, and she's like, I didn't, I didn't use it, Mommy. What are you talking about? Did you use my gun? No. So no. weird how that happens. She's a unicorn. She just, you know, she sweats glitter. Emits glitter. Um, about me? Yeah. yeah. Tell us about your life. So I've been doing, I've been acting since I was nine years old, and I, that's a long time for those of you that can't see me. Um, it's, um... I don't know. I feel really embarrassed. Um, I spent 20 years uh, living and working in New York. I went to NYU and just kind of stayed and uh, studied and taught. And I taught with the Metropolitan Opera Guild right before um, I had my first daughter. And then we moved for my um, former spouse's job several times. And I just kept trying to find more theaters to work in wherever and made a lot of friends and taught a lot of kids and taught a lot of grown-ups and landed at Villanova and got a master's degree and opened up a whole bunch of doors that I didn't even know I wanted to go through. So one of them being solo performance, which was, I don't know, pretty good fit, I think, so far. Mm-hmm. While I was working on this, I called it thesis pieces because <laughs> I couldn't make it all come together. <laughs> so it was just in pieces all over the place. So... Brilliant. That's My real. Pieces. That's life. That's mm. playwriting. <laughs> That's your thesis. It's all pieces. <laughs> so would you tell us a little bit about the play, about kind of where it came from, about how you created it? So this is, this was my maternal grandmother, my Italian grandmother, um, who I spent a lot of time with when I was growing up. And just because I, she was fascinating to me and she would tell these stories like they were nothing. And I got older, pieced them together, and realized what the timeline was. And, and it was just such a fascinating story that she lost her dad, and she didn't know where he was, and he had gotten Spanish flu and been taken away to an asylum, and they never claimed him. So it, he just couldn't earn for the family. Everybody was dying of the Spanish flu epidemic in World War I, after, after World War I, even happened on Downton Abbey. And they never claimed him. They just assumed he was going to die, and, and her mother couldn't survive without you know, a husband and income. And so she married this son of a bitch. And eventually the older kids in the family knew. So my grandma was little. My grandma and her younger brother were little and they didn't. Dad just disappeared. And they assumed he was dead because, and they they moved him from asylum to asylum because he was better, but then he was mentally not all there and they lost track of him and, his last name was different because there was the Ellis Island version of his last name, of her last name, and then the actual Italian version. And and her sister showed up at her wedding and said, where's, where's Papa? She's like, what do you mean? Her sister was like 12 years older than she is. 
She's like, you didn't even look for him for your wedding? And he's like, she's like, what do you mean look for him for my wedding? And then she started, she and her brother started searching and found him. How long did it take them to find him? Um, so she got married in 1939. And I think the first photograph I have of her with him is three years later. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Two years later or three years later. And she tried several times to kind of connect with him, but it was just the recognition wasn't there and she couldn't really do anything for him. And But she did take, she found him before she had my mom and she did take my mom to go see him. So she saw him actually a couple of times, but I'm, I don't think he ever saw her. Mm. And that just really resonated with where I am in my life and what women go through to be seen and recognized and honored and it's it's just a whole different story for me at this point in my life so why did you decide to tell this story today why why now i had a had a rough couple of years and it's changed the way that i look at this story and the way that i look at stories in general and the way that i look at women's voices and the struggle that has shifted the needle a little bit but not much from this depression era story. Um, it's not quite as epic as actually losing track of a human, but I think we all lose track of ourselves and struggle to find what's our voice, what's the voice someone's putting onto us, what label are we supposed to operate under in this situation, in this situation, and with all those masks, where where are we at the end of the day? And I think that myth and story have always been struggling with some of these questions. It just hasn't really hit the female side of humanity yet. It's all about man's struggle and man's coming of age. And it's a very different struggle for women. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly this is her story mm-hmm. and, and you didn't get to really hear his. And it's, it's very right. interesting that you're telling her story through your perspective it's through my perspective, and there's a lot of my story that's in there as well. Mm-hmm. Without it, without it being too expositional for myself at this point, because I think the plight of finding your voice is it's universal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and not just I shouldn't just say for women, but it is a lot for that, for sure. For sure. <laughs> what I think is so special about about your story and about this play is that she did tell you these things especially when like even now saying these things is shameful you can't talk about being abused you can't talk about anything that could suggest that you're struggling and I think it's just so special that she was so open with you to tell you honestly that this is what was happening with her she she had her euphemisms like I know the duck bit my great uncle's penis but she never said the word penis <laughs> and I know I mean and they were, it was interesting to me because the vernacular I think about how our, our vocabulary has changed and how the vernacular of certain taboo subjects has been revealed like it was there but now it's being revealed and somewhat normalized to use in, in conversation but her euphemisms were very clear to me I mean not when I was a little kid when I was a little kid we used to lay in bed together and giggle and my mom would come in and be like, you girls have to keep quiet. <laughs> so there were all these other crazy stories that she would tell me. When I got older and the, and the more serious stories came out, like the part about locking the bedroom door, what, she must have told me that 
I don't know, mm. four or five hundred times. And that is all that she said, except that when her sister showed up at the wedding, she had a split lip. And she thought to herself, she probably didn't lock the door. So it's, it's an evolution of awareness, but it's more an evolution, I think, of vocabulary and comfort. Because it, with, well, I would hope, I don't know, I can't speak for everybody, I would hope trusted individuals will be able to use those euphemisms to, to communicate their stories. Um, but yeah, it was, I'm, I miss her a lot, but I feel like I carry her with me everywhere I go, so... And certainly her telling you stories has empowered you to be able to tell it yours. And now you're using it to be able to empower other women. And by spreading this message of of talking about what's going on in your life and talking about um, men who are treating you wrong, we can create a a space where where women can talk about it, where women can escape it, where women can support each other, Mm -hmm. where good men can support women and even men who are being abused. And it's a lot less crazy making. I mean, you can sit inside of these stories and if you think you're the only person in your own story and no no one's ever experienced this. I mean, Betty Friedan did this crazy survey before the first second wave of feminism came out. All these women thought they were alone in being unsatisfied and and leaning up against the, the washing machine to have an orgasm because they were unsatisfied everywhere in their life. And it's so important to not feel crazy. The, the messages incoming are never going to be tailored to fit who's receiving them. I, I would hope I'd like us all to be that individual. But even as even as a group, women just don't. They're not. They're not mainstream. Mm-hmm. And if we are, we're angry. I hate that. You can't be powerful. You're a bitch. Hmm. I mean, my grandma was like money laundering in her clothes with the, the two envelopes going home and everything. She, she was crafty and smart, but she knew how to keep her head down hmm. because the consequences would have sucked. I'm wondering if you have a, a favorite story or something that didn't make it into the script that just sticks with you. My grandma... So we would we would sit up and giggle all night. She used to tell she was a horrible prankster. <laughs> I mean, she she's like you know, Shani, you know what a hot foot is? I'm like I think I've seen it in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. So a hot foot is when you take a match and you light it or you you put it in between the sole of the shoe and the shoe on someone who's asleep most likely, and you light the match and the match burns into their shoe. So this poor boarder, Luigi, that was at their house all the time, she and her younger brother, would hot, he would come home exhausted, he'd like put his feet up on the porch, and they would hot foot him like every day. I mean, something's saying that Luigi was not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but... Luigi needs to write his own play. I know. Oh, I know. Terrorized. These, a goddamn children. <laughs> So it got to the point where his shoes were getting ruined. And the whole idea of having a border was to help them out financially. So her mom gathered everyone around the table, all of the kids from the different marriages and whatnot. And she's like, look, this is serious. You have to stop putting matches in Luigi's shoes because he needs them to work and we need him to work. And she's giving this whole speech. And my grandma's younger brother curled under the table and hot-footed his oh mother. Oh, my God! Which is just brilliant. And she never missed him because there were so many kids around the table. 
That's like my favorite story. That's amazing. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I mean, as much as my grandma lost touch with her mother, I have to I have to hope, I should say, that she laughed at some of these things because Oh my gosh. Our kids are always smarter than we are. I can't imagine. Big matriarch of the family, hot footing her shoes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Speaking of uh, children and children, I guess all that comes with that. Uh, so one of the things, knowing you, that I love most about this script that I would love you to talk about is at the very end when you talk about having your own rose garden. My little roses? Yeah. It was really important to me to carry some part of my grandmother into my my daughters. So they both have the same middle name. They're Olivia Rose and Lila Rose. And that, that rose bush is still growing out of control at my parents' house. Um, and I really don't think the second rose bush is a second rose bush. I think my dad planted it too deeply. So, <laughs> so the branches <laughs> split. Just... He was a good sport for even doing it because it is really thorny. It's like a wild rose bush. And, um, and so are my kids. I mean, I, both my girls are wild roses and I want them to know the fire that they come from. Um, and it's, they're my girls. I adore them, but I want them to go out in the world. So they're only mine. I get to grow my garden for a little bit and then off they go into the world. So I want to make sure they have equal parts, petals and thorns so they can survive because it's, it's hard for kind people, I think, sometimes. Mm. I saw this amazing thing uh, on the internet. It was a meme. <laughs> on the what? On the interwebs. Oh. A meme. Was it YouTube? A meme? a meme? It was a meme on the Facebook. And so it was basically a cartoon of a person that touched a, a rose thorn. He was like, ow! And then the, the rose was talking to another flower. And it was like, man, that person touched me and I didn't want to be touched. And I was like, oh! Right? Yes! That's why we need the thorns, too. Mm-hmm. Actually, that reminds me of another meme I saw on the Facebook. <laughs> um, and it was like this little stick figure, like, working in the ground. And the guy comes up behind him and he's like, what do you think's going to happen, like, next year or next month or whatever? And the guy's like, I think they're going to be flowers. And he goes, well, what makes you think that? That's stupid. And he goes, because I'm planting flowers. And then you see, like, you know, later on, like, flowers coming up, which I think is <laughs> beautiful, like what you were saying about giving your your children, this story and this heritage to come through. Um, and actually, I'm really curious. When you tell your girls stories of your grandmother, what what does that look like? Is there a ritual the same way that grandma gathered you around the... No, it usually happens over food. To, to be fair, I still have my grandma's dishes, and I still do Sunday family dinner, even though we're scattered all over the place. It's just kind of this open invitation. Please let me know you're coming so I have enough <laughs> spaghetti and meatballs, but... I want to come to family you dinner. Can come, you are all welcome okay. to come to family yes. dinner. Absolutely. I will even have the fake cheese that you like, Anne. There you go. Yes. I can't be We'll be playing D&D, and I'll be at Johnny's family dinner. Perfect. And we do. We tell stories, and it's, sometimes it's prompted by the, the dishes that we're eating from or some stupid memory that my brother or my mother has of my grandmother. Or, but it's usually me because, <laughs> because I did, at one point, I interviewed her because I thought I wanted to get the timeline of the story, not factual but in a timeline because she would she would reveal these little bits and pieces and a lot of times they had uh, they were humorous and I would just think of it as a humorous story and then I realized they were fitting together somehow 
Um, so it's usually over food. A lot of things revolve around food. I just want to put in a, a, a little insert. Shanine's brother is the freaking best. Oh my goodness. <laughs> He's Seriously. The best. Talk about like a Gillette human. model man. He is the most supportive human being. Holy crow. Every time I've ever seen him around Shanine, his eyes just like yeah. light up with pride. He is mm-hmm. wonderful. Like, and so excited to be able mm-hmm. to help with whatever's happening. He's a, he's a good guy, and he has, uh, we share a sense of humor. So oftentimes, <laughs> if you hang around us too much, you have no idea what we're talking about, and none of it is original words. They're all from either like Star Trek, Doctor Who, um, yes. Monty Python. So, yeah, we don't, we stop oh speaking in, you know, our own thoughts. Charney, no wonder you and I get along so well. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a meme on the interwebs. Speaking of. Speaking of. And it was uh, like a little stick figure holding a pot with a flower in it. And this is what I think of often, a little stick figure. Um, and, oh, I can't remember the setup. Oh, it said happiness. The pot said happiness. And someone comes up to the little stick figure and says, wow, that's really beautiful. And the person says, thank you. I grew it myself. Oh. And I was like, mm, yeah, that's that's a good one. Whoever that cartoonist is, thank you. Good job, meme cartoonist. Well done. (laughs) And to add on that meme, for people who have a hard time growing their own happiness, um, sometimes your plants die a lot. Uh, Yeah, they do. And it's okay if you can't grow your own happiness because it's freaking hard. It's really hard. It takes a lot of, I don't know patience which i don't always have and like learning the right tricks and it takes time mm-hmm. and sometimes you have to buy things to help and sometimes you don't have money and That's sometimes real. there's no sun and sometimes honestly the best thing you can grow is a weed yes mm-hmm. i have like shamrocks in my house that i've had for years i don't usually grow things very well because they're weeds and i just water them and they wake up every morning and then they go to sleep every night they close up like little umbrellas do they really yeah they're cute i didn't know that and i'm just like well oh, I can grow the weeds, and weeds are beautiful, too. So. Like it. Okay, so. I feel like we're a gardening show now. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> with your questions. We'll Google them for you. So in the script, you talk about um, you didn't hear the stories until you heard the stories. So when did you hear the stories? My, my grandma had been gone for a while. And it was kind of, it was one of those things I feel like I had set it aside and in one of the many moves that we were making, um, feeling lost and feeling disconnected, I was either packing or unpacking her dishes and knowing I had taken some notes or written some things down. And it only took a couple of like you know, sentences for it to kind of erupt in my brain what, this, what the story was or what I felt like when that story happened. And with the perspective of having my own girls and the stuff that was happening in my own life, it it took on a whole different flavor. It was no longer this lovely, you know, old timey story that I I might have mm-hmm. you know read somewhere in a um, a work of fiction. It was it was somebody's actual story with actual pain and strength and adventure, and it resonated with me in a time where I was feeling lost, unrooted, and very alone with what I was struggling with. And very unseen, just incredibly unseen. And remembering the humor, and sometimes even remembering you know the smells in the room or uh, what t- 
time of year it was of the stories was on one level. And then it kind of dropped into my stomach into a different level that I hadn't, I think I needed the distance and, and the experience to really connect with. But um, yeah, it needed to happen when it happened. Mm-hmm. It's been a really nice thing to hold on to for sure. I think uh, my favorite part of the play, uh, that every time I've heard it, this has been my favorite part, is I, I quoted it. When you compare the first imperceptible moment of abuse oh, to yeah. the moment that broke, the moment that shattered, you are shocked and somewhat ashamed of the distance in between. I think that is my my absolute favorite moment because, like, th- that happened to me because I was I've been abused by several people in my life and um and the most significant one like my body literally went into shock and i i just could not stop sobbing for mm. 12 hours when it when it clicked for me that that's what was happening yeah the discovery the discovery part is hard and yeah that line actually was in and then out and then in and then out because i was feeling a little exposed and still feeling a little raw and frightened and being able to being able to put that in there in my own voice and understanding the the journey I had taken with setting my grandmother's story aside and then coming back to it it's it's what makes it so invisible what makes it so imperceptible um any any kind of abuse like that is in, almost impossible to detect at the beginning and it's the shame comes from I am a strong person. I mm-hmm. can handle this. And that's exactly how you fall into again and again and again and again, because it's tiny. And then when you look at the results, it is it is astonishing. Mm-hmm. And it is confusing. Very confusing. The entire time it's happening. It's, you know, a lot of people have this perception that the abuse is constant, but it it isn't. And there's there's such good moments in between. That's exactly right. And it's so confusing and, and you don't know. And even when, when people are telling you this is not okay, the way that he's treating you is not okay, if if there's something to on on the other end to back up the support of that relationship or the love in that relationship, you get so confused. It's terribly confusing and you don't feel like you're it's crazy making. Mm-hmm. It's the whole the whole idea of gaslighting is truly crazy making because mm. you're being told one thing, you're experiencing something else, and then you're feeling something completely different, and it's mm-hmm. just constant conflict, which makes you feel a little crazy. And for people who are like really good abusers, <laughs> you know, there's also the other side of them that they show the love bombing different people. Oh yes, so there's like. This charming, charming human yes. versus you who's confused and then your friends who are telling you this is bad. Yep. Yep. And that's one of my favorite lines in this is when you're tired of being strong yeah. and you realize you don't have to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not it's not heroic. It's not it's not certainly not self-care. It's just it's just abuse. And it's really hard to identify and then accept Mm -hmm. because it seems like something that's outside of yourself, but it's, it's reaching really deep, deeply. And to quote lovely John Green. Nope. This isn't John Green. This is Perks of the Wallflower. Who wrote that? Oh, uh, 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 rainbow. uh, What? mm. I can Google it. What's her name? 
Well, Isn't it a man that wrote it? I think. See? Don't ask me. Andrea's Andre I'm, I'm looking. So the quote um, is, we accept the love we think we deserve. Oh, and so and that's so true. Part of the part of the process of of leaving abuse is, is learning not to accept it anymore. And that means that you have to love you. Agreed. And that's really hard. It's very tough. And especially if you are trained mm-hmm. to expect a certain type of love. This is what it feels like. You know, we have all of these impulses to run away from the tyrannosaur, but um, some of those impulses are habits are, are not uh, they're not safe. Right. It's just clinging to what's familiar because familiar didn't get me killed last time the Tyrannosaur came around. Yeah. And it's actually quite destructive in a yeah. confusing way. Well, and there, there's a psycho, psychological concept that's similar that basically says we would rather have what is currently happening to us because we know we can survive with that. The devil you know as opposed well, to the devil yes. you don't. That's what I was going to yep. say. It's interesting. If, uh, another friend of mine who works in the Philadelphia school district was dead set on staying in a really abusive school that was terrible for her. And that was her exact reasoning is better the devil, you know, than the devil you don't. And I looked at her, I'm like, what if you don't have to deal with the devil at all? At all. I know. But that doesn't occur to you. No, right. Mm-hmm. It really it doesn't. Just, it doesn't. That's not an option. It's, it's binary in a way that's this or nothing. I think there's also something to be said um, for like how your brain is wired. Like mine is always wired to the negative. Everything's going to be worse. It's always going to go to shit. <laughs> doesn't matter what it is. My brain immediately goes to the negative. So when I'm given that kind of option, it's like, well, no, that will be worse. doesn't matter what it is. It will be worse. <laughs> but they call that catastrophizing. <laughs> if you plant flowers. But what if they're really don't get poison ivy? <laughs> but Sometimes it's really hard to live in Andrea's world. <laughs> oh, my brain. You're, you're, no, like we're going to plant you're a flowers. Good partner, Dave. That's great. Let's plant flowers. Mine will probably be poison ivy. <laughs> Like that might not be what but I you know planted, what? There but are people that are actually not up. allergic to poison ivy. What? I hear about those crazy people. There, there has to be someone in the No, there are. The I know one. I see. Well, to be fair, it's because he got it so bad <laughs> that he like almost died, and his body's like, now I'm invincible. Okay, I don't. I don't. Uh, all right. Abigail <laughs> Adams did that with the smallpox, and it works. Yeah, see, and I it mean, doesn't, I mean. <laughs> to go back to a previous point, the Parks of Being a Wallflower was written by Stephen Chbosky. Um, okay, so I have one last question. I don't know if you have one, Marianne. I think that's it. I think that's all I have. Great. So I really want to end this with your favorite memory of your grandma. My? Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Surprise. <clears throat> what if Shawnee's not done talking yet and you were like, you have to be done? Well, we seem to be really off topic, so I I had one more thing to say about storytelling, but I mean, it's the most Um, important thing. The thing she wanted to say about storytelling is what Tyrion said in the last episode. (laughs) Part of what Tyrion said, you're right. Thrones, like actually, he stole it from her. It's true. I believe it. It's true. I mean, I have a lot of witnesses. I said it first. (laughs) I'm not really sure the exact time of Game of Thrones, but. I definitely said it first. The, the, the storytelling, the, this particular storytelling journey is seems elongated for me, but we, uh, I feel like she lived the story for me to interpret the story because her choices about dealing with what she had to deal with and all of the social, she was a social pariah and they ended up moving to another neighborhood, in fact. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> there was another incarnation of this where I had like a little Greek chorus behind her I called the Gravy Gang. Because, well, that's what Italians call sauce, sauce. But 
Italian Americans call pasta sauce gravy. I do not know why. <laughs> what do you call the thing you put on mashed potatoes? Gravy. See, I don't call okay. it gravy. <laughs> but then they, they also never use the word pasta. Everything was what kind. It was the rigatoni, mm. the spaghetti, mm, the okay. fazili, what number pasta it was even. Are you making the number four this weekend? No, I'm going to make a number six this weekend. Uh, number six <laughs> never cooks up so well. Well, we can use the leftovers when we have a pasta fajoule. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> but it was called. So the gravy gang was this chorus of women because things got back to her. She had, I mean, she, not like she was friendless. And certainly my grandfather's family was very kind to her. Um, and the whole reason they met is because she was best friends with his sister. Mm. Um, but there were rumors flying around. I had this kind of, this this Greek chorus in the back. I couldn't quite make it work with the solo piece of these women who were just talking about her, who would be, you know, gossiping about her, saying, and they had to leave the little Italy neighborhood that they were in, um, which is fine. I mean, they... I, I miss that house. That house was so small, but I miss that house more than any other house I think I've lived in. Um, but it, she took a very quiet strength approach to working through that story and making it not happen for her children, making their lives as easy as possible as far as the dangers that she knew. And of course, there's always dangers that we don't know. And I always tell my kids, I, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes, but I hope I don't make the same ones over and over again. And I hope I don't make the mistakes that my parents made. And they look at me and they just say, can we go out and play? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I feel, so I feel like she had to live the story and be okay with telling me the story. I mean, she told me the story. She didn't tell my mom the story. My mom knew bits and pieces, but it was the time that I spent with her, you know, reading her like a book that was... It, I kind of feel like it's my job. I'm angry enough now, and I'm mm. passionate mm. enough, and I'm not afraid to be loud and loving and angry and all of those things all at once. Um, and but that's that's the that's the power of what a story is. It's it's so we all. I can't really. We all lose our baby teeth. Right? That brings us all together as a community. We all lose our baby teeth. But when and how I lose my first tooth and when and how mm. you lose your first tooth is completely different, <clears throat> depending upon how old, when, where, inside, outside, at school. What Everybody has their own story, and the fact that we have the commonality of losing the tooth is what makes our individualism more important. Because... It we're I I don't I lost track of that sentence. Sorry, we're all stories in the end," said Doctor Who. Just make it a good one. <laughs> I was buying you time so that you could think of your favorite memory with your grandma, <laughs> and it actually really worked. So uh, my my grandma was constantly in the kitchen, this teeny tiny little kitchen, and she was always baking pizzelles and tarale mm. and these yummy Italian cookies. Oh. And that is a tradition that I try and keep up every Christmas uh, to make these cookies. So Even though... pizzelles are on Christmas, I'm just saying. Yes, although my uncle stole the pizzelle iron. I have to get my own, I guess. Um, anyway. <laughs> you should so, have 
that divorce party that your daughters oh, want to throw you, you and then you can get a pizza maker. I'm just saying, if there's pizzas in it that I can pick up, I will totally buy you a pizza. So yeah, my grandmother, she, she experimented with the, the anisette, and she mm-hmm. made chocolate ones one time, she made mocha ones one time, but the anisette, I mean, that's so good. that's what you want. So you walk into her house, and you could tell what was happening for dinner and or dessert because of the way the house smelled. And I, I got to a point where I was getting older, and I'm like, I really want to learn how to make gnocchi or mm. your what she called homemaders or roll meatballs so i would set up these dates with her and i would show up at the house and it was made and i said <laughs> <laughs> i said especially with the pizzas but they take so long i thought we could just sit down and have a cup of coffee I'm like, well, now I want to learn how to make these. She's like, okay, well, I'll write it down for you, which of course is bullshit because <laughs> she never measured anything. I mean, some of the baking stuff you have to measure, but she was just like, you know, a handful of this and what, do, is it the right color? Is it the right consistency? She'd roll the meatballs and be like, mm, no, there's not enough breadcrumbs in that one or there's too many. <laughs> and, and it was all like done by touch and feel. And mm-hmm. my interpretation was love. And, uh, but she's like, well, th- you don't need to do all that work, sweetheart. We can just sit here and have a cup of coffee. <laughs> I'm like, so missing the point. And it happened a couple of times until I would show up unannounced <laughs> with the ingredients. And she's like, oh, all right. <laughs> if, we're, if we're out of things to talk about... Um, Okay, so I just want to make a final note for the end of this story. Um, Anyone out there, women, men, non-binary people, any human being, if you are in an abusive relationship Mm -hmm. and you need help, if you need to get out, if you're scared, you can do it. There are resources to help you. You can even reach out to the Upstage Podcast at gmail.com and I will talk to you. There are people out there that will believe you. Yes. Yep. That's, I think, the biggest thing. Yes. We got your back. Or, sorry, you got your back. Well, we, we all, we we all, we all have your back. your back. Even Shawneen, even Lupin. So, if you feel like no one wants you, we do. We do. The Upstage Podcast is hosted by Anne Marley and Andrea Rumblemore. Produced by David Moore and Hear It Sound and Studio. Music composed by David Moore. Find out more about the Upstage podcast at annmarley.com slash the hyphen upstage. If you enjoy the Upstage, if you like what you hear, if you want to help support new theater, and if you want to keep hearing new plays, consider donating to our Patreon. Donations help us pay voice actors and playwrights, and we want to be able to pay our contributors fairly for their work. Any donation is appreciated, large and small alike. You can help keep small theater alive. Check out our Patreon, found on our Upstage website at annmarley.com slash the hyphen upstage.